Welcome to a special mini-season of Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and the co-host of The Waves, Slate's show about feminism and gender. This episode is one of five that are all available in your feed right now, by the way, about second actors, people who have made a dramatic career pivot at some point in their lives. In this episode, I'll be talking to Patty Stonecipher, who went from being a Senior Vice President at Microsoft to launching the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to becoming president and CEO of Martha's Table, a small Washington, D.C. nonprofit. I'm very happy to be speaking today with Patty Stonecipher, who is currently the CEO of Martha's Table in Washington, D.C. Patty, you've had many more than two acts, so could you begin today by outlining the various stages of your career? Well, yes. Thanks, June. I'm glad to be here with you. And I have done what I call zigzagged quite a bit (laughs) in my career or multiple careers. I started out uh, dropping out of college and um, needed to find work that uh, would allow me to put my husband, who I met in college, through school and became a technical writer at that time. And the technical writing was always about this new computing that was going on, and it turned out that I had a real flair for it and moved from technical writing to training right away and spent the next 20 years, I always say, writing the line between those who are creating new technologies and those who are consuming new technologies. And that's how you and I first met at Microsoft, where I spent almost a decade, and uh, that was the last stop on my 20-year career in technology. At the end of that time, I was 40. I had uh, had more success than I ever thought and knew it was time to rethink what I wanted to do next. And at my going away party, uh, <laughs> Bill Gates um, mentioned that he wanted to talk about this philanthropy that he and Melinda were beginning to expand. They had been doing it with their dad out of his house and their kitchen table and <laughs> So a few months later, I started the Gates Library Foundation, and uh, a year after that, we created the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with Bill's dad and myself partnered as the day-to-day leadership of this wonderful new philanthropic endeavor. So I did that for another decade plus, and uh, then... As Bill Gates exited Microsoft, I exited the foundation, which I had loved and built, but it was time, a logical time for me to transition. And I came to the nonprofit world, which is where I am today, finishing my third career, uh, which I'll retire from later this year. Wow, I am exhausted uh, just hearing about those uh, jobs. It's really striking to me, though, how, you know, when you first went to Microsoft, you were working, as I understand it, as the editor-in-chief of a computer book publisher in Indianapolis. Right, And, you know, that Do you ever kind of think how different your life had been if you hadn't applied for or hadn't gotten that job at Microsoft back then? Well, you know, as of yet, there's been very few jobs I've ever applied for. They they were on a hunt mm. for grown-ups. Mm. And at 30 years old, <laughs> I was considered a grown-up in the technology field. And Microsoft had a book publishing arm mm. called Microsoft Press. 
And so they called and asked whether I would consider joining them. And I'd been writing books and editing books about Microsoft products, but then Microsoft was pretty much number two or three in every field. You know, mm -hmm. we had Lotus Development and we had WordPerfect and we had all of these other alternatives. And I just knew that I had two young children and Seattle looked fantastic. <laughs> so it seemed like a, uh, they must have caught me on a wintry day in Indianapolis, but it, <laughs> it, um, it seemed not only like it would be a place to continue my belief that this new microcomputer technology could expand access to technology for so many people, but also this company that was willing to take risks and try new things really fit the entrepreneurial spirit that I developed at this small book publisher. And so it it seemed like a logical path. It looks like a big leap, but mm. it looked to me like a great family choice mm -hmm. and a great career choice. I had no idea that Microsoft would end up being the number one player in all of these categories. I don't think that any of us really understood um, how rapidly that would happen at that point. Yeah. Before we get to what you did at these various jobs, there's one thing that struck me, maybe because I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I don't know if that was the case for you, but certainly like your, I read that your father was a car salesman, your mom was a physical therapist. So even before you went to Microsoft, you were doing a kind of work that was different from what your parents had done. It was a, you know, a office work or a creative profession. Was that a challenge? I mean, did you always was that a comfortable shift that you went that you did that kind of job? Well, yes, I think my parents always presumed that their kids, you know, there was still this kind of American assumption that each generation would do a mm. bit better than the one before it. Uh, my mom had advanced degrees and had uh, been able to really pursue her college dreams, but then had nine children, <laughs> right? And that kind of got in the way of of, uh, of continuing any kind of climb in her own career. But my father was one of seven, seven children in his family, mm -hmm. and so his own college career was really truncated by the need to constantly earn money, raise money, um, come up with money for both family and, and his own needs. So they, But they always valued education. And I think in terms of the two primary values that I learned at home, it was about the importance of education and the importance of social justice. Mm. Those were kind of paired in my early experience of my family. We didn't quite talk about it that way. Mm -hmm. They didn't abstract from what was going on in the 60s and civil rights or uh, why they thought these uh, different people were so important for us to learn about. Mm. But that was kind of the overriding ethos was that education for all of us was important. They couldn't help support that financially. We had to do it on our own. And mm. that made some uh, bumps and starts for all of us. But we all did go on to get some additional education. And that was just the norm in the household. That's great. So you ended up at Microsoft. What kind of work were you doing there? What was your day-to-day -day life, maybe at the beginning and at the end? Because I know that you actually, in those 10 years, did an awful lot of different kinds of jobs there. I did so many different jobs. And that was <laughs> one reason I think that it was such a, a wonderful experience and that I extended it for a whole decade and that I came in to run Microsoft Press. So I did pretty much the job I'd been doing in Indianapolis, identifying opportunities for books, finding uh, writers reviewing manuscripts and working with all of the publishing 
uh, sector to make sure those books got out and got sold. And so it was very typical of a computer book publishing, which is the organization I'd left in Indianapolis. But very shortly after I got there, within the first year, um, I went to a Microsoft leadership retreat where they would pick, you know, quote, young, I'm using air quotes, you can't (laughs) see them, young leaders from across the company and take them on a retreat with the top honchos, which were, of course, at that moment, all men (laughs) and all very technical. And they would take on at that retreat three or three or four big questions that were similar to three or four big questions the executives themselves were grappling with. Mm. And something happened in that that they identified that they should grab me out of the book publishing and start moving me around the moving me around the company. And wow. within a few weeks, I was in Microsoft International Division. And within a month, I was running Microsoft Canada wow. and moved to Canada to run the a subsidiary there where I learned about all aspects of Microsoft, having been very focused on the computer book business, learning all of it very rapidly, as well as all the customers, and just continued from there. My very last job, which is when I got to know you, <laughs> was as the senior vice president of what was then called the interactive media division. And I the shorthand I tell people, which is if you had a lot of fun using a Microsoft product, that was one of mine. <laughs> if it was it was all of the internet products, it was the mouse and the keyboard and all of the uh, joystick. And it was also the small business and publisher and Expedia and other products that were designed to be used by the consumer to further enhance their lives, not necessarily their business, but their lives. And so I got to be there at the at the at the launch of Encarta, at the beginning of a whole range of new businesses, uh, some of which made it and some of which are in very different forms. But the one that I'm most excited about was Slate, because not (laughs) only was that part of the portfolio of products that uh, was in my division, but that's where I met my husband, Mike Mm -hmm. Kinsley, who came to Microsoft with this idea that political and cultural commentary could be taken to a new level online. And and I met him in his interview loop, and the rest <laughs> is our personal history. That's amazing. And, and we should note, too, that just because sometimes these things are forgotten, that when you were brought in to lead that division, it was considered not only a priority because people could see the future of the internet, but also there was a sense that Microsoft had fallen behind. So kind of being put in that position was both a very challenging one, but also a very important one to the company. Yes, I think in some ways I was someone that they pointed at challenges, leadership Mm -hmm. challenges. When I went to Microsoft Canada, it was about a sudden change in the leadership there. When I took on product support, worldwide product support, it was because people were waiting two hours on the phone Mm -hmm. to get their Windows question answered. And when I entered the consumer division, which became the interactive media division, it was because, as you say, there was a combination of the fact that we were seen as falling behind, but it was also seen as a category of great importance for the future. I'm very curious. Do you know what it was that you said at that retreat that got everyone's attention? (laughs) I do. I do. One of the scenarios was uh, there's a great recession and suddenly, you know, 
people are spending less and our retailers, you know, don't have the cash to buy more software and are in an unbelievable pinch, uh, what do we do in this recession? And most of the people said we hunkered down, we cut costs, we do X and Y. And we had a good cash balance. And Mm -hmm. my belief was you could look at history and recessions don't last forever. And we should extend credit to the retailers. We should make sure to push forward with the developments that we were on. And basically, I said, we could hold our breath longer than anyone else. And that holding your breath during a period of of want mm-hmm. of, of recession and doing the work you were focused on doing, at the end of the recession, you could come out much, much stronger. And just the idea that I was both a risk taker but had a plan behind it, Got a lot of uh, of attention. I guess it uh, was unusual, but coming from a more entrepreneurial yeah. um, background, it was logical to me that you would say, we're already in a risk business. You take this risk. That's fascinating. It's also a reminder never to um, – don't get too hungover you know, at the retreat. Really stay there. Pay attention. Uh, and bring your best uh, – bring your A game to your retreat. Well, I was going to stand out anyway because there were only two women at the whole retreat. So, you you know, you, you kind of go into that knowing they're going to notice. Yeah. <laughs> it's a matter of what they notice. That's right. Well, actually, that's one thing I wanted to ask about because I understand that, uh, you know, especially back then, it, Microsoft wasn't a place that people stayed at forever. You know, at the time, the Pacific Northwest was full of 30-year-old retirees. Not so much anymore, I think, or certainly not from Microsoft. But, you know, there was a sense that it wasn't a lifetime job. But was it harder for you to leave because you were so visible as the senior woman at the company? And also that being so stark because there weren't that many women in the higher uh, levels of the company? Well, yes. This is an issue, I think, with folks who are seen as at the front of an important change. And at the time, I think, though, the women across Microsoft were really invested in the idea that I was at the (laughs) executive table Mm. and that my representation meant not only the work that I was doing and the team that I was directly representing, but the fact that a woman's voice could and should be heard in the mix of uh, mostly male mostly out of the computer science field voices because I came from a different background too. So it was important and I did consider it, but ultimately you have to make the career choices that are right for you and your family and your own trajectory. But that this is one reason why organizations should never consider themselves to be done uh, right. when if one woman leaves because you have one woman in the <laughs> executive suite, the devastation on morale is, is significant. And it was felt to be a real kick for morale. But thankfully, other women did come behind me and took many of those executive positions in the future, but nowhere near at the percentage that we all believed mm-hmm. by now. We were really under the impression that that ceiling that glass ceiling had broken and that women would be in a wide range of, of CEO and C-suite mm-hmm. positions across the sector in no time at all. And we still don't see the representation of women in the sector that we had naively thought uh, was happening then. Yeah. One more thing before we get to your first change, which is I'm very curious what kind of hours you were working by the end of your first career, as it were, at Microsoft. You know, we tend to think of tech companies being places that demand very long hours. Obviously, being in the executive team is also incredibly demanding. And you, as you said, you had two kids at this time. 
how was the workload? Just apart from what it was that you were doing, how was the number of hours that you were working? And, and I'm curious how that has kind of evolved over the course of your careers. Well, as you know, June, they say wherever you go, there you are. And <laughs> I've always been somebody with a very strong inclination to work. I love work. I love being productive. I love making a contribution. I also love my family. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was a lot of discussion about life balance. And mm -hmm. there were these pictures of this wonderful array of life balance things. And I always said I didn't have a wheel. I had a teeter-totter. I had family <laughs> and work. And so I concentrated heavily on both of those, family and work. And it was a very rich experience. But I I didn't develop much in my other areas. I wasn't uh, out pursuing music or theater or spiritual life or many of the other things I neglected during that period, but had a very rich work life and a very rich family life. Mm. Thankfully, I was not carrying a email device on my hip at that time. That wasn't yet a factor. We all logged in at night and yeah. did a lot of work after the kids were in bed. Mm. But I worked a fairly reasonable schedule. I had to travel a bit because, of course, I was uh, selling products as well as building products. Mm. And I had to represent the work around the country and around the world. But for the most part, I would work a good nine, 10 hour day, go home, have a have the evening with the family and then log back on to the clunky computers of the day <laughs> in the evening. Um, today, I think young family leaders have it uh, more difficult in that the presumption of being always on is yeah. very real. There really was a block in the evening where I knew things might be piling up, but I could get to them later and they mm. weren't beeping or chirping on my hip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, so it was time. It was time to leave Microsoft. As you mentioned earlier, you were approached by Bill Gates. But what was it that you, you know, you'd left Microsoft? Didn't this seem like this was just going to be a continuation of Microsoft? How, what was different about the foundation, originally the Library Foundation, that made you think that this was the kind of change that you wanted to make? Well, I always saw the work that we were doing at Microsoft as this kind of liberation of technology, that access to knowledge for all, you know, especially the work we were able to do in the interactive media division. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to buy The Economist to get the quality of writing of The Economist. You could log on to Slate, and you didn't have to afford uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. You could afford Encarta, and eventually, of course, you <laughs> didn't have to pay anything for Wikipedia. But I believe this kind of – this. Uh, um, liberation of the knowledge that we were holding and the technology that we were holding was very important. So when I left, to be honest, the day that I announced, my colleagues from DreamWorks called on mm -hmm. a conference call and asked me to join them because we had done a joint venture with DreamWorks. And when Jeffrey Katzenberg and Steven Spielberg and David Geffen are on the phone and say, look, you <laughs> ought to come work with us, you say yes. So I said yes on the very day that I announced I was or that it became public that I was leaving Microsoft. I said yes to DreamWorks to go and help them with an interesting new animated film venture that they were investing in and building up. And it was at my going away party, which was some weeks afterwards, that I first began the discussion with Bill and Melinda huh. that caused me to pull away from DreamWorks very shortly after I started there. What I heard from Bill and from Melinda was they were committed to those same reasons that I was so excited about the work 
of Microsoft and the work of technology, which is that they had seen that public libraries could be a bridge to access to all of this knowledge for all, but the public libraries were behind. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the connections. They didn't have the resources, and they certainly didn't have the technical expertise to kind of join the internet era. And when I asked Bill, well, how many do you want to do? He said, well, maybe, I don't know, 5,000. I said, what if we did all of the public <laughs> libraries? And he said, in the United States or around the world? And that answer drew me to them because I realized that the scale of their resources, their values were aligned with mine, mm-hmm. but the scale of their resources allowed him to say, just in the United States or around the entire <laughs> world, every library. And that is a beautiful, beautiful asset they bring to their work, which Mm -hmm. is they can think very big in the box or out of the box. And that opportunity to help them script that, to design that, to bring the talent together to do that, whether it was with attaching computers and access to the internet to rural libraries in Alabama, or ultimately it if it was bringing much-needed vaccines to rural areas in India and Africa and beyond, that was appealing to me that that alignment of social justice and increased knowledge and combined with their resources Mm -hmm. could really be transformative. And who wouldn't say yes? So I signed on as a volunteer because I wanted to help them realize their vision, but I didn't want to go back to the same relationship that I had as uh, reporting to Bill in that Mm -hmm. traditional fashion that I had at Microsoft. And luckily, my time at Microsoft had given me enough personal resources that I could design a job that had no income and Mm -hmm. do and and do that with no regrets. But th- that's interesting to me because I know that both at the foundation and at Martha's Table, which we'll get to a little later, you have essentially been working for a nominal salary, I believe a dollar a year. And I wondered, you know, does that really make a difference? I mean, you, I'm sure, again, I'm sure you're still putting in a lot of hours. I know that the, the kind of work that you must have done at both both places. Was taking the money really that significant? Did it really change the the nature of the relationship with your employers? Well, um, we'll go backwards and say, with Microsoft, I don't think it made any difference at all. I made my money there. Mm-hmm. At, the, at Martha's Table, I'm a donor to Martha's Table. That's how I knew about Martha's Table. Mm-hmm. I had been giving money to Martha's Table, and it didn't make a lot of sense to take money uh, from Martha's Table and <laughs> right. turn around and give it back to Martha's Table because then the then the government got part of the money in the process, <laughs> and it just wasn't necessary. So yeah. I just skipped a step there. At the foundation, it was really quite different. I wanted it to be a very, very clear signal that I was doing this for my friends, Bill and Melinda Gates, and that I was doing it as a friend and a colleague, not as a paid CEO. Did it change the dynamic? Maybe only in my head, mm. but we were partners. I felt like we really were in a, a partnership in creating that. Of course, the resources came from Bill's founding of Microsoft, but the day-to-day leadership that I was doing, I really felt like I was a part of a family foundation structure with mm. Bill Gates Sr. sitting, you know, 10 feet from me and <laughs> and Melinda and Bill weighing in constantly on our priorities and our activities. 
it really was a, a family foundation mm. uh, from the start, and I chose to uh, more closely become part of that family for a period than a traditional mm. leadership role. I get that. It's funny, though, because a lot of when these are the conversations that I've been having with second actors, for them, in almost all the cases, the challenges of making a switch revolve, uh, maybe not they're the biggest challenges, but they're the most urgent is around like losing an income, you know, putting aside a job as an attorney and going back to school to, to become a rabbi or or kind of having to restart a career at the bottom. And it does put a, a stress on the family or or even just on the person, you know, you get a lot of your, your good feeling from, you know, how well you're doing and all that kind of thing. If you take money away from the challenges, what were the biggest challenges uh, as far as making these switches, what was your pain point in these transformations? I don't know if you'd call it pain point, but one of the disciplines I needed to employ was trying to both figure out what was my own ambition for the use of this biggest gift I had, which was the time that I, you know, remain on this earth. Mm. How would I use my time? And that was always, as I said, this teeter-totter between family and the priorities of family and being productive member of society through work, um, through both pursuit of social justice and education priorities. Mm. So trying to say, forget about ego. The discipline for me was don't take the job that people will think are as cool, as sexy, as wonderful. Take the job that you get up in the morning and you can bounce into work because you're you're so pleased with your ability to utilize that time. It is absolutely the case that if you take a look at how to plan out the best career it is, what can you be really great at, mm -hmm. what are you really passionate about, and what drives your resource engine. And I steal that a bit from Jim Collins in Good to Great. That's how he thinks corporations and nonprofits should design their own corporate strategy, but I believe that's how you should design your personal strategy, and I tell people that all the time. What can you be really great at, maybe even the best in the world at? What really drives your passions, and then what do you need as a resource engine? So if the answer to the first two lands you with kindergarten children, <laughs> then your resource engine needs to be appropriately designed to where that constant misalignment of resources, where you're not going to get paid very mm -hmm. much as a kindergarten teacher, is not going to get in the way and cause that flywheel to go clump, clump, clump. Yeah. You're going to have to organize your life around that size resource engine. Well, that issue was taken away from me. So mm -hmm. I really got to say, what could I be best in the world at? What drives my passion? And not say, what job would it be really cool to call my mother and tell her I got? And there was <laughs> quite a few job offers and inquiries that came through that were very, very cool jobs to mm -hmm. have, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, to have on your Wikipedia page <laughs> to call your mother and tell her about. But I constantly put myself in the situation of saying, it's Eight o'clock, you're walking out the door to work. Are you skipping? Is it the work you really <laughs> want to spend the rest of the day when you're thinking about that day? And I've been very, very lucky at my time at the foundation, at my time at Martha's Table, in my work with the Smithsonian, and at my time at Microsoft to love the days that I had. And I think that's the most important question of all. Do you feel like that you are utilizing uh, what you have in a way that makes you happy as well as delivers that productivity that all of us want to see in our efforts. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite inspirational. Um, 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Let's get back to the foundation, what became the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As you say, you started it, or when you joined, uh, it was a library foundation. It was focusing on on essentially wiring libraries, giving them those resources to kind of democratize knowledge. But it did transform under your leadership. Did you enjoy that transformation? I could kind of see thinking, this is not what I signed on for. But how did creating the world's largest philanthropy, how did that come about and how did it feel? Well, I think in in much the same way that Bill and Melinda got addicted to (laughs) the learning about the their, uh, you know, going deep on their own values, seeing where the gaps between what they believe and what the world was, and then figuring out whether those gaps were addressable with their resources. I got sucked into that same thing, right? So Mm. I don't think there was a moment in which we suddenly said, why don't we make this a $40 billion (laughs) foundation and go convince Warren Buffett to double it by his his, uh, generosity? It just kept happening that issues that we would delve into, we could see how we might have with a combination of resources and the ability to attract ideas and leadership to these issues that we could solve a big problem. So you get into that puzzle and you lose track of time. You know, it's it's a it's a matter of suddenly this this organic idea of how about every library uh, became a a similar idea about how about every child uh, has access to the right vaccines? How about every woman has the reproductive health knowledge and tools they need to plan their family? How about every family have, you know, eventually they were doing toilets, you know, so it it was about that structure of saying we hold tight certain values and beliefs there are some gaps. We have certain skills and certain resources. Let's pick some of those that we think can be bridged. And it just happened quite 
organically, frankly. Bill Sr. was doing giving in the William William Gates found, uh, Trust out of his home, and we would meet regularly while I was doing work with library. The library work suddenly began to morph to include more education. Bill's uh, Sr.'s work in reproductive health began to include more investments in vaccines, and we realized that while we didn't think of this as a foundation, a classic foundation with a capital F, mm. the rest of the world did. <laughs> and the inquiries we were getting and the people that were coming to us with ideas, it was clear that we needed more expertise around us and needed to create a structure to hold that expertise, but also to accept more of Bill and Melinda's resources, which they were getting very excited about moving forward much more rapidly than the original plan had called for. I think originally, they thought they'd do some philanthropy. And then when the kids got a little older and Bill was able to leave Microsoft, they'd really get going. Well, <laughs> we really got going in in the late 90s. And, you know, it was, I was very lucky to be part of that. But we got going around the ideas, not around the idea of an institution. Mm. So you, you intimate this, which is one of the reasons every time I've stepped away from a job, it's because I feel like I've become more of a uh, – a bureaucrat, somebody mm. running um, a machine rather than the person with their with their hands in the in the solution. And at that uh, was part of my motivation to go to Martha's table was I could learn more being on the front line or close to the front line. But because my skills uh, map so closely to senior leadership, mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time on leadership issues and not on the actual change issues. Others facilitate those, and that was the way it happened at the Gates Foundation, too. Well, you've, you've talked about moving over to Martha's Table, which I believe happened in 2013, and there was a lot of kind of shock that you went from the biggest philanthropy in the world to a very small local Washington, D.C. organization, uh, nonprofit. Talk about why that particular organization was interesting to you. And also, had you always intended for there to be another job? Well, even today, I presume there'll always be work, <laughs> whether it's a job or not. What, what, how do I use the knowledge I have and the skills I have to keep things moving towards the vision of a of an equitable society that we that that I believe uh, we so desperately need and that we do not have today. Um, so there will always be work, whether it'll be a job again. I don't know, and I didn't know then. Honestly, I knew mm -hmm. there would be. Uh, I I presumed there would be another job. I was chairing the Smithsonian as mm -hmm. I left the. Gates Foundation. And between continuing to advise them on a couple of things and working with a couple of other large philanthropists on their ideas as kind of a side gig, I had the honor of really this big role at the Smithsonian, and I wanted to really dive into it. That's the other part of the things I love. I love the increased knowledge, which is a which is at the heart of what the Smithsonian does. And it's such a treasure that ensuring that it was in great shape was important to me. But during that time, I got to um, consider a lot of different roles. And I found that most roles, I didn't want to skip into the office every day, <laughs> right? But in 1994, when Microsoft was under pretty significant stress in Washington, D.C., mm. from the Department of Justice, our one government relations uh, person suggested that we bring computers and training to the main library branch in Washington, D.C., as well as this one great nonprofit named Martha's Table, which is at 14th and V. And I was the 
person who was able to do that and mm. eventually Bill joined me in a event at the library and at, at Martha's Table. But I came out and learned the people and what they were up to and identified how we could help them. And I fell in love with this nonprofit called Martha's Table at that time. So fast forward, you know, a decade plus and I saw their little newsletter during this period when I was finishing up my chairmanship at the Smithsonian. I saw their little newsletter that said they were looking for a new president. And I had been talking about president jobs, but with very different style organizations. And I thought, that is a job I could skip into work for. <laughs> I would learn so much about one issue that deeply troubled me that we had made no progress on at the Gates Foundation, and that was the equitable access of children to education and outcomes that were similar to their middle-income peers. Mm -hmm. This is a real problem in the United States and a place where we believe that everybody should have equal opportunity. We do not see that the neighborhoods, the resources, and the education that is accessible to children born into poverty or or children born into other challenged circumstances have. And I was both excited to join an organization that I love so much, but also to learn deeply about what happens in the life of a child born into a family with limited resources in their own quest for the same kind of opportunity that I supported my children in pursuing. And that's that's been both a joy and a, and a real uh, challenge the last six years for me in learning the reality of that at Martha's Table by being able to stand with uh, family leaders and young people who are trying to have the same kind of outcomes and opportunity that my own children have. Mm. You, as you are getting ready to step down, I notice that a lot of the write-ups focus on, you know, doubling the revenue, a uh, big real estate move. You sold that 14th and V center and have, have moved over to Anacostia, moved the headquarters of the organization. Those are kind of, they feel like the kinds of things that would you know, would appear on, you know, somebody's review. They would be in the annual report. But are those the things that you're most proud of? No, the number one thing that I learned in this process was that neighborhood matters and matters greatly and that the issues that face a family struggling to have enough income to be successful in the community that they live in is a complex system of the neighborhood that you're in, the resources that are in that neighborhood, the resources your family have access to, whether those resources are in housing or in safety or in local education institutions. And my belief and the reason that we did sell that 14th Street property and we are now located in the heart of Ward 8 across the Anacostia River here in Washington, D.C., is because we believe that that's what community development needs to be. You need to join neighborhood, join leaders on the ground, be they family leaders, be they church leaders, the local grocery leaders, whoever is there willing to say, we're going to stand together and address this complex system one area at a time. We're going to work with the police on safety. We're going to work with education system on improving the quality of the education. We're going to make our playground safe so the children have the physical development of their middle-income peers. We're going to ensure that early childhood education is accessible to all. And to me, the idea of social service that is 
tightly targeted is important because everybody needs a great middle school experience mm. or they need um, healthy food. But these things are entwined in complex systems where a mother makes a trade-off between that healthy food or the transportation to that grocery store mm -hmm. and paying this other bill or ensuring that there is a gift under the tree. And if you don't recognize the complex systems and just try to go after the silver bullet of mm -hmm. we'll improve education and then everything will get better or we'll improve the teachers in the classroom and we'll see enormous change, we have to address the complexity of the systems that are underserving those without higher incomes in this country. And until we tackle that complex web, which, by the way, racial issues mm -hmm. overlay and are entwined in every aspect of those systems, unless we own that fact, untangle that system and begin to stand with the people that are there in that community to create the change, we'll never, never see a child born into lower income have the likelihood of the same outcomes as their middle income peers. We've got to tackle the idea that these complex systems, including that most of those systems were shaped with deep racial issues, that unless we peel those apart and address them all, we won't achieve the vision that ultimately Martha's Table is looking for, which is in the next 20 years, a child born into the neighborhood where we now are located will have the same outcomes as their middle-income peers. And that's a tall order, but one we're very excited about and seeing real potential in the partnerships, in the neighbors, in the police force, in the food systems to work together to try to see whether we can't move that needle and see those outcomes. You speak with such passion about this that I just know with absolute certainty you're not actually <laughs> stepping away from this. Do you, do, I mean, what are you going to be doing uh, after you've retired as the president and CEO of Martha's Table? Do you know yet? No, I'm taking that teeter-totter seriously, and mm. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on family priorities, including I have three beautiful grandchildren, mm. two of which live out in Montana and one here in Washington, D.C., and support my children in their pursuit of their careers while juggling family priorities, and then kind of just rebuild from there. How can I kind of flip the priority to family first and then continue to pursue what you rightly heard as my passion for the idea that increasing knowledge and social justice are priorities that we all need to be working on. So I won't stop working on those. I just don't know what shape that will take. Can you tell me what's been the hardest part of your job at Martha's Table? Clearly, you've had a great deal of satisfaction. You've, you've been very excited by these challenges. But what, what's been hard about it? Well, there's no question that it's been a journey for me to really understand how white privilege and my own privilege and the systems that were designed by folks of privilege, by governments that were shaped by white privilege, and taking all of that apart and getting down to to the very beginning and understanding that many of my assumptions, my own sense of urgency about this, the ways that I myself, when in the philanthropic field, looked for silver bullets, mm -hmm. looked for a way to address inequity. How about this program? That, that the idea that many of the ways that we were pursuing solutions were a new form of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. They were a new form of uh, we'll roll out these changes in the libraries. And the, if you asked me what my 
uh, hindsight was in that library project, it would be that we had a technological and training solution that we just rolled with, right? Mm-hmm. And and the working deeply in every single community with every single librarian, the sense of urgency we had that time's a waste and we got to get it done probably inhibited their ability to do story time the way they needed mm-hmm. to do it that day or their mm-hmm. ability to do X. And so this necessity to harness my passion in an appropriate way that recognizes that I need to set aside my privilege and my access to resources and listen, learn, and shape our go forward in a way that addresses what those living in this community, leading in this community, um, being born into this community, listen hard and shape our work accordingly, that's been the biggest lesson. And also really just understanding the role that race continues to play, even in systems that are designed to, again, air quotes, help Mm. the very folks that we are talking about, who are often families of color, but they're all from a different economic experience right now. And they're dealing with systems that were really designed when segregation, when um, a very strong sense of who will have success and who won't have success. Many of these systems, whether it is our our food stamp systems, our subsidies of different kinds, were designed around those of us who have mm. and with a sense of safety net perhaps at best mm. for those who who have less. And that is something where I'm only a tiny way into my own journey of understanding my own leadership, my own privilege, and how to approach these uh, situations in the only way that I think they will stay permanently resolved, which is an equitable voice for many Mm. instead of the disproportionate voice that people who look like me, have the resources like me, and have had the background like me are able to employ on these systems. Wow. My last question, you've had the opportunity uh, to both work with Bill Gates and to obviously shape his ideas. I'm curious if you can think of, uh, if you can articulate rather the ways that Bill Gates has influenced your work style and, and also how you have influenced his. Well, you know, Jude, I also have had the opportunity the last 24 years to work closely with Jeff Bezos. And mm-hmm. both uh, Jeff and Bill, they're very different people, but they share a similar trait in that they ask what can be, right? They mm-hmm. they love the blank sheet of paper. They don't presume that because it's not their area of expertise or it's not their you know they haven't they haven't put in the work to have the PhD that something like malaria should not be considered f- through a new lens mm-hmm. or that uh, the opportunity to build out a new solution needs to come from one that's already there. They're very comfortable with that blank sheet of paper and begin to design the w- start with the vision of how you want things to be and then go backwards to what would have to happen for that to to be the reality. In the social sector, we call that a theory of change, right? You <laughs> identify you identify the change you wish to see and then go backwards to figure out what needs to be there. But in the ways they built their businesses and in the ways they run their lives, this idea of that blank sheet of paper against every problem is something that I've taken on personally and said, let's not increment up from what is, let's decide how it should be and then see what we might do to bring things closer to that vision. 
Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. I just want to note one thing, which was that uh, you mentioned that you've been working with Jeff Bezos. That's because you're on the Amazon board and have been for many, many years. I think I'm headed to 24 years on the Amazon board. That's and amazing. that's, of course, been a, a real exercise in starting with a blank sheet of paper and and continuing to build a company that is both important and at the center of, of much of our um, much of our lives at this point. Indeed. Patty, this has been an, uh, an amazing interview. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, June. That's it for this special bonus episode of Working, but don't worry, there are four more episodes about second actors available to listen to right now. You can write to me or to Jordan Weissman at working at slate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Thanks for listening. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.